Hello, I'm Jean Lovett. I'm one of the partners in the Linklater's Employment and Incentives team. And I'm kicking off this series of presentations in which we're going to share with you our thoughts about the post-pandemic workplace. I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Emma Gray and Rachel Morgan. Hello, Emma. Hi, Jean. And hello to you too, Rachel. Hi there. We've very deliberately chosen to focus on the post-pandemic workplace, realising that many of you will already have many months of experience of devising and managing successful COVID-19-based working arrangements. It's not a surprise that at the time we designed this seminar series, our expectation was that we'd be moving into a far less restrictive working environment. But given recent developments, full return to the workplace is now much further down the line than we'd expected. Nevertheless, we believe it is still important to look through and beyond these challenges to the future of the working world. For many jobs, but certainly not all, we believe that some form of agile working is going to be here to stay. Even the most sceptical of us have had to admit that. That said, many of you will find that your formal policies are lagging behind the pace of change you've had to deal with. And with that in mind, we're hoping that we're going to be able to tease out some of the critical issues, including important legal issues for you to focus on if you're looking to set or update policy and working practice. So against that background, the first question I think has to be, is this the right time to be changing your policy? Emma, what's your view of that? Well, we're not through the worst of the COVID-19 situation, but we're not in knee-jerk reaction territory now either. So now is probably quite a good time to step back and consider what's gone well and what's gone less well. And this will help to shape policy and practices, which for now probably need to reflect the hybrid environment we're working in. Current home working arrangements, which are arguably mandated by the government, mean that employers have needed to update working practices. So taking stock at this stage and updating policies probably makes sense. But any new policies probably need to be interim for the time being. So there are essentially two parts to this. First, communicating that the policy is interim and secondly, reserving the right to update it from time to time. Thanks, Emma. So where do you think employers should start? And um, I suppose importantly, how do they make sure that they stay true to their values and culture when making quite a big shift? Well, employers shouldn't forget the basics. So what the business does, its purpose, client needs, the legal and regulatory framework, and importantly, their values and culture. Some businesses have transformed during COVID, so they might need wholesale new policies. But for many other businesses, the underlying business is essentially the same. And so for them, limited or temporary changes to their policy on agile working might be what's needed right now. We've heard quite a bit of talk about, um, you know, the employee's experience of working from home. How important do you think it's going to be to ensure that you get feedback from your employees to inform your, your policy setting process? Well, employees' knowledge of what works and doesn't work is important and also useful, uh, but policies also need to reflect the views of other stakeholders. For instance, client needs are always going to be at the forefront. Policies also need to reflect law and regulation, which are obviously changing areas, particularly right now, and those aspects will not be negotiable. So what we'd recommend going forward is continuing staff engagement and policies need to be kept under regular review as we all adapt to restrictions on work, which will inevitably ebb and flow. Yes, of course. Um, one observation that I have from the last six months uh, and from talking to many other people is, of course, that we've been forced to make do in order to keep businesses going. Um, and to support this, I think 
sectors have taken a fairly tolerant position, as have many employers, on quite a, a sort of spectrum of issues. Any policy for longer term use will have to reflect the fact that this making do is unlikely to be good enough once we're out of crisis management mode. So let's take some time to look at the hard law and regulation that's going to sit behind some of these issues. Rachel, perhaps we could start with the view of regulators. Obviously, many of our clients are PRA and or FCA regulated. Can you talk a bit about what we're seeing in financial services? Of course. Um, I think it's fair to say that the FCA has showed an element of pragmatism at the initial stages of the pandemic. But since then, they have made it clear that they now expect firms to have got to grips with the specific regulatory risks that arise from the new ways of working. In recent publications, the FCA has highlighted certain challenges associated with home working, such as the risks surrounding market abuse compliance, given the difficulties of monitoring who may receive inside information. The FCA has also identified that home working gives rise to new challenges for conduct risk, given that staff are not working in proximity to their peers and without their usual support infrastructure and oversight in place. Yeah, I think conduct risk is probably a, an area where there are lots of challenges in a homework environment, which probably takes us to think about training and supervision. And, you know, what does the FCA have to say about that specifically? Well, when it comes to discharging their supervisory obligations for remote employees, firms should review their processes to ensure that they continue to align with the FCA's guidance. In a virtual environment, when there's less visibility and access to staff, firms might need to implement a more formal supervision structure and adopt a more proactive and deliberate approach. One of the examples that's given by the FCA of good practice when supervising staff is to assess an employee's questioning, advising and presentation skills. So firms should find ways to carry out assessments of employees' key skills, either by virtual means or perhaps by ensuring that enough time is spent in the office to allow that assessment to properly take place. You also mentioned training, and we think that firms should reassess their current training programmes. This might include changes to the way in which the training is delivered, for example, by making sure that all training is recorded and can be made available online. But the content of a lot of training may also need to be refreshed to take account of the new ways of working. For example, shared home workspaces, less visibility of individuals' conduct and their use of personal devices can prevent significant regulatory risks. And therefore, employees should receive specific training which addresses all these issues. Clearly, when designing future working arrangements, firms need to be considering their regulatory risks and how they can fill any gaps in their risk mitigation on a more permanent basis. It may be that given the risk profiles involved, firms decide that certain roles and activities are not suitable for remote working on a more permanent or full-time basis. I agree, actually, and I don't think it's just going to be pure regulatory grounds. Um, I think what we are seeing as time passes is that the longer people spend out of the office, the more they're appreciating what they've taken for granted about being in the office and what they gain from office-based working arrangements. One thing that we've talked about across all sectors and not just in financial services is employees who have access to a lot of sensitive information as part of their role. Um, obviously, that's something that policy needs to address specifically. Um, Emma, what are you seeing uh, people tackling in order to deal with those challenges? 
So IT security, confidential information and data privacy policies all need to be reviewed and updated to reflect lessons learned during the initial stages of the pandemic um, and any new technology which was introduced as a result of it. So whilst emergency solutions may have been put in place when employees were required to work from home on little or no notice right at the initial stages of the pandemic, arrangements which are going to be put in place now and in the future need to ensure that they're fit for purpose on an ongoing basis. And what sort of practical steps do you think employers need to be taking to protect sensitive information? So the ICO's guidance on working from home is a really good place to start. For instance, this recommends providing employees with employer devices to ensure correct employer security controls are in place. But when employees use their own device, they should have remote access to employer apps and email systems so that the employer's data is kept separate from the employee's own personal data. Policies should also deal with some of the practicalities. So make it clear that staff should be mindful of people viewing their screens or hearing work conversations, that they should lock devices when not in use, and that they should store and dispose of hard copies properly, for instance, locking them in the cabinet and bringing them back into the office confidential waste bins rather than chucking them in with the recycling. Some of these things sound like uh, that for some employees, they're going to feel they're an infringement of their rights of privacy. You know, they really are bordering on telling people yeah. what they should be doing in their own home. Um, when you can't see how your employees are behaving or how long they're spending at their desk and you can't keep an eye on the tasks they're doing in the way you would do in the office, um, can you use technology to monitor them remotely and other privacy or other issues to be aware of if you intend to do so? So yes, uh, there are some forms of monitoring that are permitted, but employers need to balance this against employees' rights to privacy, um, bearing in mind the Human Rights Act, the GDPR and the Data Protection Act. Employers need a legitimate reason for carrying out monitoring and to have properly thought through whether their aim could be achieved um, less obtrusively. There's been quite a lot of uh, negative press reports of companies using software to monitor their staff remotely, for instance, by tracking keystrokes, how long employees are away from their desks, how long it takes them to complete tasks or by taking um, regular screenshots of their system. And whilst innovative, this is risky. It's caught the ICO's attention recently and um, we know that investigations are underway and we're also aware that the unions are starting to take quite a keen interest in this area. So our advice is that employers should proceed cautiously here, um, always carrying out a data protection impact assessment and being really quite transparent upfront with employees about what monitoring will be carried out and why. And aside from the sort of legal aspect of that, I mean, it potentially sends quite a negative message to employees, I think. Yes, I think potentially th there's certainly a risk there. Um, I think if it cuts across values or culture, or if it appears really quite obtrusive, it could affect trust and confidence and also potentially productivity. So the reason for monitoring should be clearly explained to employees. So for instance, monitoring for compliance reasons is likely to be less objectionable than monitoring with no clear goal in sight. And employers should think about whether there are other ways they could achieve their aims. For instance, regular communications between managers and direct reports, wider team check-ins and guidelines on availability expectations with the process for agreeing exceptions. But some monitoring could actually help promote values and culture. Since employers have less oversight right now of how employees actually engage with each other, this does actually come with certain risks. So bullying or 
or harassment could more easily go unchecked and whistleblowing issues might fall through the cracks. Another podcast in our series this week will cover this in more detail, so make sure to stay tuned and download that when it's available. Thanks. We've talked quite a lot about looking after the employer's interests. Let's take a slight change in direction and look at the interests of employees, in particular their, their health, safety and well-being. How should this be managed for in an increasingly agile and remote workforce? Rachel. I think it's important to remember that employers are responsible for the health and safety of all their employees, and that's going to include those who are working from home. So far, the health and safety executive seems to have applied a flexible and proportionate approach to regulating the health and safety aspects of working, and that's given the enforced and emergency nature of working from home during the height of the pandemic. However, employers should be mindful of their obligations when people are going to be working at home on a much longer term basis. We'd recommend that policies and procedures are updated to address remote working practices. For example, you could ask employees to complete an online assessment in respect of their home workspace. And employers should ensure that their home workers have the necessary equipment and it's correctly maintained. Well, this was something that was quite tricky to manage when large numbers of employees moved to full-time home working almost overnight. It's not going to be something that's acceptable to ask employees to just make do with in the long term. And I think where employers are on notice that certain employees have particular needs, for example, pregnant women, those with back problems or other physical disorders, it may be appropriate to provide them with specialised equipment or to carry out an in-person assessment of their home workstation. And I suppose looking at the physical health and safety isn't the only aspect of this. Um, you know, the, the mental health and wellbeing of colleagues is also going to be important. Um, perhaps you can say a few words about that, Rachel. Of course, I think arguably one of the positive things that has come out of the pandemic and the consequence of lockdown was that it exposed the importance of workers' mental well-being like it has never done before. It's important for this to continue as we move towards a more agile working environment. Stress and anxiety issues can be exacerbated when individuals are working remotely and it's much more difficult to identify when employees may require additional support. There are a number of initiatives which employers introduced during the pandemic, which would be beneficial to continue indefinitely. We've seen people putting in place buddy systems, arranging regular team catch-ups, or having one-on-one -on -one virtual coffees. These types of measures could help improve employees' mental well-being and reduce feelings of isolation when they're working from home, as well as also providing an opportunity to identify any individuals who may be struggling. We'd also recommend that you consider providing training to employees about the mental as well as the physical safety aspects of working from home. And employers should also consider specific training to managers to make sure that they properly understand how to manage staff who are working from home and to make sure they can recognise signs of stress and anxiety when they're not sat with individuals in the physical workplace. And I suppose that brings us to the point of having to recognise that home working is not going to be right for everyone. Um, many of us are not natural converts to home working on a permanent basis. And despite that, I think we are reading that many employers are looking to downsize their office space. So, uh, you know, they have savings on that front. Yes, that's right. I think whilst many people, employers and employees alike, have experienced benefits from home working during the pandemic, and they'll want to continue some form of home working arrangement in the longer term, there are a number of employees who don't feel the same way. 
So once the government is no longer instructing people to work from home, it may be quite difficult for employers to direct their employees to continue to work from home if those individuals actually want to come into the office. So before putting in place any new working practice and policies, employers should consider whether it's actually consistent with their existing contractual framework, in particular, any terms and conditions relating to work location. Depending on what's currently in place, a permanent instruction to employees to work from home on a long-term basis could require changes to contractual terms. So you should therefore think about whether you need consent from employees to put those arrangements in place. And if contractual changes are going to be required for large groups of employees, you should be mindful of triggering more formal collective consultation requirements. I think one important part of this is to also consider the reason why employees may not want to be working from home. Some employees will want to be able to come into the office simply because that's their personal preference and it's how they work best. However, others may have particularly challenging home environments such as employees with young children playing in the house or employees who don't have a dedicated workspace or a space that they need to share with family members or flatmates. As such, I think it's important to assess whether any new policy which requires employees to work from home would have a disproportionate impact on any groups that might have protected characteristics, such as the younger population of your workforce or those who have caring responsibilities. And if that's going to be the case, you need to make sure that any such policy can be objectively justified. Thanks. I think that's a good reminder of how there's some legal traps that you may inadvertently fall into. Finally, it's probably worth just reminding ourselves that before the COVID crisis really hit in the UK, the possibility of uh, stronger flexible working rights was actually outlined in the Queen's speech last December. Those proposals were to make flexible working the default unless employers have a good reason um, not to allow flexible working. Emma, is there any update on that uh, legislative proposal or has it got completely bypassed by Brexit and COVID-19 related legislation? Yes, sadly, I think for the time being it's been bypassed. Um, we, ha we haven't heard much recently at all on the government's plans for reform in this area. So some people might argue that legislative reform is no longer needed here since there's been um, a fast forwarding in cultural attitudes towards flexible working because of COVID. But we, we might well see further change in this area because of the level of interest in it. And at the very least, employers might need to give a bit more consideration to a flexible working request before declining it. Since if a job has been performed well remotely during the pandemic, it might be harder to turn down a permanent flexible working request reasonably. And employers should always be mindful of indirect discrimination claims when turning down such requests, since we often see those issues linked, which increases the risks. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much to Emma and Rachel for joining me today. There's definitely plenty to think about for those of you who are looking to refresh or replace your policies about working arrangements. This brings us to the end of today's discussion. As I mentioned, it's the first in the series that we're releasing this week, and I do hope you find them useful. As ever, we really appreciate your feedback, so do let us know if there are other topics you'd like to hear from us about.